full disclosure, I am going to keep my contributions today a little bit short because I am um, on an on a train with my wife to uh, visit some family, so I don't want to be too disruptive uh, to other people during this trip. Um, but that being said, I'll give you a few highlights for the week, uh, and then I will pass the mic to Prepop and Alex G. Uh, Prepop in particular has some really uh, great updates and also just some detailed answers to questions we've been getting from community members about our upcoming V2 vaults. So I think it'll be really nice to be able to tune in and listen to what he has to say. Um, before we get into that, I think you know the major updates on my end to share that you know we remain on track to launch our first suite of products at the end of Q4, as, as we've been communicating. Feeling very optimistic and very excited about that. As we get closer to the product launch, obviously, business development really, you know, um, certainly on the business side of the team is, is top of mind. So what I can share is that we continue to have some very, very exciting and very promising discussions with, uh, with external partners, particularly CFI platforms that have, you know, the, re the relevant tech stacks and licensure to custody digital assets on behalf of institutional investors. As I've expressed before in past calls, I'm very much of the view that um, building those foundational partnerships with you know major major CFI platforms that have you know digital asset asset custodial capabilities uh, and that have really robust uh, existing networks of institutional clients is going to be the fastest route for Umami to rapidly scale TVL after after it launches its product at the end of this quarter. So we're going to remain very focused on that. But that being said, you know, we continue to also work towards having, you know, essentially, you know, the capabilities to function as a, you know, full service digital asset custodian uh, and financial advisor, registered investment advisor in house. Our, our long term vision is always to not be dependent on third parties and to be able to work, you know, directly with institutional capital to help onboard them into our vaults. And so Alec. Um, our chief legal officer has some exciting things to share. Um, yeah, but you know, I think the team and you know, we continue to move toward having a um, registered advisor, and in the, uh, the requisite money services businesses via uh, capability. We're gonna we're working towards that with under our Umami Advisors brand, and we're talking right now almost half. Really well, custodian uh, names. If I were to share them, which I'm not going to just yet, but you know their names are ones you would know. Let's put it that way. Um, we stand um, from business perspective. Some very dates. A new use for Uma, who has been long, has been with us for. Uh, Geez, you remember, you know, how <laughs> how gritty and rough around the much uh, more polished UI, but I think what we're about to ship next week will really take things to the next level. Bob can talk more about some of the incredible new functionalities that are built in, but, you know, the overall, this is just going to be much more polished blue chip and also more personalized and data rich so that people will be able to see a ton of data, you know, on-chain uh, data on the vaults, the token, um, get some personal uh, data 
uh, wallet asset performance as well. So we're super excited. Uh, and also, just for really um, our deep into economy, um, I have been I end as in-depth light paper, uh, fully up to date, sketching out you know all the relevant features of strategy. Um, and that should be going live next week as well. So I think, you know, there's been, I've noticed, a need um, for just one central point that really gives an overview of Amami's strategy. We have good docs, but I don't know if they paint the big picture as clearly as it could be painted. So going on the new year as well, um, and we continue apace with part discussion. Uh, progress on Umami Advisors, our own in-house digital asset custodian, uh, and on the Vault launch itself. And with that, I will or to pre-pop. Um, and thanks so much for for being with us, folks. Hey everyone. So um, yeah, I've got a. Another update. I'll keep this short because yeah, we did get a number of really great questions that came on uh, through the Discord channel, and uh, we may have some other questions too uh, from some of the listeners. And I do want to give Alex G enough time to speak because I, I frankly love hearing everything that he has to say. I find the the legal and side of uh, DeFi really fascinating, especially all the recent events and and. Uh, everything going on right now in the landscape. So uh, anyways, as uh, you know, if you've been following along or if you're new, um, the dev team is hard at work and um, we're splitting out a lot more focus into the smart contracts um, these past, this, this past week and a half. And, um, you know, a lot more diving into the strategy, some of the um, getting some of the tooling in place to, to finalize some of the, um, you know, finer details on the on the strategy, and I can get into some of this on, on the question, the questions that we get. But as we get closer and closer to launch, we'll be able to to safely reveal more details about the inner workings. Um, and you know, I think it's also important too, as as a mommy holders, everybody um, has the right to know kind of the the protection or, or kind of moat around our strategies, right? Like. Uh, it's a very common theme in DeFi uh, for protocols to to go out and, and fork, fork replace with incentives, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think we're in a really good place um, with the complexity of the strategy and the approach that we've taken um, to be protected from from just a you know simple fork and things like that. So I think uh, in the recent podcast and, and we've done some interviews lately um, and we've get, gone into more specific details on about the strategy because uh, we feel really good about the place that we're in so far. But um, yeah, the, the backtesting, as I mentioned before, I'll, I'll keep a quick summary, but <clears throat> you know, we've taken the backtesting analytics and strategy design completely in-house. Um, and we've got some consultant from uh, a brilliant mind that works in uh, TradFi. And, um, you know, we've taken this and, you know, as a protocol, I think it's it's really going to strengthen not only the strategy, but also um, all of our products moving forward. I think we're always going to have this this deep layer of backtesting, modeling, and strategy design through simulation uh, before even starting on on the uh, smart contract coding. And um, the reason for that is, you know, 
better designs, better strategy design. You learn so much more about the vault or contract or whatever product you're building as a complete system and how it interacts with the other protocols. And part of that is um, taking GMX and simulating to the exact smart contract level every interaction from you know fee allocation, dynamic fee allocations to to limitations and in orders everything. And so it's been a fantastic process. It's been a lot of you know, a lot of the work that's not so fun in, in uh, DeFi design, a lot of data pulling, a lot of, you know, simulation, uh, reading through contracts and, and, and replicating. But, um, you know, I'm very happy about, uh, about taking this step in-house and, and completing this step. And um, then I want to discuss the new front end that's coming very soon. And in October, things are, are looking great on that and can't say enough good things about GrayPixel. And uh, Clones Cody, who's recently joined us and, and has done such a great job um, contributing on the on the front end and um, and the API, and also our designer, our uh, front end designer Tendino. And um, Tendino is great to work with; love working with him. And he's been helping, you know, a lot of DeFi projects. He's really becoming like the the designer of uh, of DeFi as late, and and you love to see the increase of user interaction, UX design, just good design uh, is much needed in, in DeFi. And so I think people will be really pleased with the direction that we've taken because it is a big focus for us personally as a protocol to have great user interaction, user flow, usability, and great design sense. And and, and, um, and also, Edis Suzan has done wonders for um, our cohesiveness for marketing, branding, through any materials we publish, as well as our website and, and designs, even the token design um, is just everything has a, a really nice branding cohesiveness to it. So, uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about, about the guys working on these things. And so, uh, you know, with the redesign, it's going to be in two phases. And, and um, when we actually go to launch this month, we're, we're going to have Graypixel, who is our front end lead dev. Uh, come on to the AMA and answer some questions and, you know, give uh, a nice detailed chat about the design process and, and uh, why we did things a certain way and, and what's in the future. But, um, you know, this first one is uh, a much improved version of our current website. We're going to be having um, some some great features for swapping and bridging directly on the website, um, some, some better analytics, a much better design and user interaction flow much better overall appearance. And then phase two, uh, which should be coming in Q Q4, um, kind of alongside the vaults, we'll also you know, put an emphasis on, on metrics um, and analytics, both for the protocol side as well as user-specific metrics. And, and those are going to be really fantastic. I think people are really going to look forward to, uh, uh, to seeing some, some of the metrics that uh, that are displayed for for personal use for uh, users allocation rewards all sorts of things so that's kind of the the updates um, happy to answer any questions that anybody might have and I'm gonna go ahead and start uh, by answering the questions on the discord that came in so I'll go ahead and uh, read the question first because I know not everybody has discord up followed by the answer. So um, the question is, please describe how the vault strategy handles open interest skew on GMX. So this is a great question. And as I said before, we're still fine fine-tuning some of the, 
the details um, and the specifics and, and how we go about this, but but our general approach is the same. And so, you know, essentially all of the open interest um, on GMX is on chain, right? Like that's that's very open. The smart contracts can pull that, keeper bots can pull that, and you have you can you know tell the difference of of short and long open interest on each volatile asset. And our vaults um, are very connected, right? Um, it's a very connected system that we use, and that gives us a lot of benefit. And, you know, also one of the benefits that we have is um, the ability to hedge out some of the risk from counterparty by, by using the open interest. And so it's essentially, you know, some allocation of if there's a, if the skew ever gets so imbalanced between long and shorts, there becomes a greater and greater risk. And the risk we're talking about is if, you know, 90% of people are long and the market shoots up with low volatility just up, um, then there's GLP counterparty risk, right, uh, of the GLP losing funds uh, to these high trades. And so in reality, GMX itself has a lot of built-in protections the way it works. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's threads on that and things like that. But the risk is still there. And so the idea is as, if the risk becomes too unbalanced, excuse me, then we'll actually hedge out that risk on top of our delta exposure hedging. And so this puts us in a unique position of being one of the only products that, that is, um, you know, actively seeking a solution for this GLP counterparty risk. And it's, a, you know... And it, it, uh, on the top level, it's fairly straightforward, right? Okay, open interest is out there, and then, but in reality, there's very specifics of um, what's the best cases of of how much, uh, what offset skew to do you start, you know, uh, bumping up your hedging for for open interest, that sort of thing to protect, and that's where we can really lean upon the back testing data um, that we have to to really nail this, and then. Uh, you know, contest it through through future s scenarios or or pick specific times with edge case scenarios of of uh, you know when when traders won a lot uh, or a little. So, um, and let's see, yeah. And so you know, there's the book uh, Art of War, right? Which is like um, never interrupt your counterparty when they're making a mistake. Um, there's there's actually some some instances where the open interest skew helps. Our vaults because it is skewed in a way that allows us to save on on taking out leverage uh, with naturally occurring open interest skew, and so you know that's kind of taken into account too that um, the skew can actually be in our favor in some instances depending on on our delta exposure with our vaults. So um, yeah, sometimes that that is to our benefit, and, and we will definitely take advantage when that occurs. So the second question is. Um, is there an easy way to track the vault's hedging operations? For example, the notional status of the book at any arbitrary time? And the answer is, you know, with that's one of the strengths of, of DeFi, right? Is having on-chain contracts that are open. Um, all of our solidity code will be published and verified on Arbiscan. So anybody can view the, the contracts. And with that, they're there will be absolutely variables that will track everything that's going on. Our exposures at the time will have APIs built into the website too that will track various information about the vaults. And a really cool idea that I've seen somewhere, I think maybe it was Ribbon, but um, certain events could, get, could be piped out 
that the vault takes to the to the front end, so you can kind of see uh, like a ledger of of some of the actions that the vault has taken uh, during its automated trading to to keep the leverage on on uh, all of the open positions it maintains and and things like that. So so yes, to answer your question, there will be. Um, a way to track the vault's hedging operations, um, and and you know s- similar as last time. Last time it w- uh, V1 vaults had the same exact thing where the positions were available in a smart contract to be read. Um, we did not have things piped out in the UI for for any metrics. We didn't get to that point. It was planned, but um, you know with our front end redesign and and uh, a- additional dev of clones, Cody, we are planning a- on having. Um, more of that at the start, and and probably adding more as we go, to as as the uh, as the vaults continue to to grow. So, um, so the the next question is, um, what venue does the compound vault use to trade uh, wrapped ETH for umami? And I'm I'm assuming this is for the CM umami, the the compounded umami. And um, that's a, a quick answer. It's the protocol owned liquidity. Uni V3 pool. So that's the the Rapti's Umami pool that that uh, we have all the liquid liquidity from the treasury that we're depositing. So um, that is where the values are compounded every rebalance period, every time the rewards are pushed. Uh, so that that answers the the uh, compounded vault question. Then um, we have a. The next question is, is a statement in the documentation still true? The statement is, at present, Umami pays its marinator with wrapped ETH collected from its own treasury allocations, a.k.a. protocol-owned liquidity or POL. Each month, Umami passes on approximately 50% of its treasury yield onto its stakers. Approximately how much monthly revenue to vaults is attributable to the subsidy? And the answer is, you know, I think to to date, everything that we've paid out at Umami has been from uh, our treasury allocations um, through through GMX and through our protocol protocol owned liquidity LP positions and and several other investments that the treasury had made over time. And so the um, to date, I think let's see, there should be a figure um, on the website. Yeah, to date, uh, two hundred and seventy two wrapped ETH has been rewarded to to marinators um, since the protocol started this um, tokenomics uh, revamp, which I, I don't know the exact date, uh, but it hasn't been it hasn't been um, too long at all. But yeah, to date, you know that that has been paying out some some serious um, some serious wrapped ETH rewards to marinated stakeholders, and will continue continue to to do the same. Um, it's you know the funds are are. Managed by our treasury managers, Stephen T and Wu Moon, they do a fantastic job in uh, in those investments and and providing it rewards for marinated staked umami holders. So um, the next question, I said there was a lot, right? The next question is six. Documentation suggests that there will be various growth switch points regarding the distribution of protocol fees. Umami expects that over time, revenue from its vaults, management, and performance fees will greatly exceed revenue from the yield on its protocol-owned liquidity. Once this occurs, Umami plans to transition towards compensating stakers exclusively from vault fee revenue and using all of its protocol-owned liquidity yield to finance its own operations. Are these decision points public either in either soft or hard sense? And I think, yes, we've, DeFi has discussed this quite a bit, and he's probably the one to answer this um, a little bit more in depth than me. But, um, you know, 
the the trigger point is is being able to to cover our protocol own liquidity fully, um, both on current operations and also the growth to um, reach our roadmap, which we've published to right. So as long as we have the funds coming in to cover our growth to reach our targets uh, and our roadmap, which may mean a few new, you know a few new devs, a few on the on the business development team, that sort of thing, the growth of of the team um, to reach those goals. Everything past that, we're targeting to push towards um, marinators and stakers, right? Which which makes the most sense of uh, uh, if you think of of um, you know kind of after expenses have covered from from the development team and, and the growth, then uh, our whole goal is is obviously is to push uh, those rewards as much as we can from the protocol to token holders, um, which are, you know, which is the core of Umami and um, which is also how, you know, a lot of our core team also has a lot of um, investment in through our own acquisition of the token, uh, belief in our in our protocol, um, as well as, you know, uh, part of the compensation for for team members and and uh, incentives and rewards and things like that. Uh, and all of this is is discussed, you know, in our kind of our tokenomics and, and uh Docs that you can check out. Uh, a lot of those details about the distribution of umami and and uh, and plans there. So, but as far as a, as a hard sense, like a hard number figure, um, I don't think we have um, an idea on that. And and DeFi could probably uh, speak more um, when he has a chance uh, regarding the decision to switch over more of that yield to to uh, token holders. The next question is, please describe some examples that would involve additional minting of umami as described in the documentation. Is this essentially a bail-in functionality? Would all holders face dilution equally? So I'm not familiar with where this particular line is in the documentation, but I know it's probably referring to um, there was a DAO vote, uh, a snapshot vote that was um, presented by uh, well-respected community member, and um, it essentially, you know, it did it did a few things. One of the things it did was it got rid of the Arby's token, which was kind of a secondary token of our protocol that had a supply of like ten billion or something like that. And so, it got rid of our Arby's token through a swap for Umami, and it also outlined some of the tokenomics of um, a, a one million Umami cap hard cap. And um, the the distribution of of the the excess minted, and most went to um, you know protocol and liquidity. Some some were set aside for future team members um, and and growth of the protocol. And then you know a lot of that protocol and liquidity is used for our LP, where people trade in wealth, so the slippage isn't isn't crazy through through the through the funding. And so one of the decisions that was made uh, at that time was: Do we hard cap like? physically remove from the smart contract any any way to produce future umami, right? And there was some arguments for, some arguments against, but I think ultimately the plan was um, let's leave it open to, if, in case there's an extreme event in the future, um, but also uh, an opportunity for growth or out of necessity, like if in the future there's just no liquidity, even protocol on liquidity, because everybody's staking for for great revenue or something, and and it, it and it drives up the LP. Um, there are some cases where you know 
the umami holders for their own benefit might want to uh to allocate some more uh umami into the into the ecosystem and so the decision was let's not hard cap that just in case there is a, you know 5 years in the future there's a case where we do need to inject some umami for the benefit of all umami holders right and so we've left it up in that uh snapshot vote as a potential um, next vote that has very high quorum, which is voter participation, and very high uh, approval agreements um, threshold. Uh, like it, it needs to have a high number of uh, voter, uh, umami holder participation and a high number of approvals. Um, and it needs to be a well thought out um, proposal that would benefit all umami holders. So I think, you know, that is, is really the only case I see um, ever the supply of, of umami ever increasing is if the umami community members themselves come together with a proposal and all agree uh, it's in the best interest of, of of the protocol and the holders to increase this cap um, and that's the only the only way it'll ever be changes through a community vote like that with with the highest of standards um and then the next question eight based off the most recent invoice from umami labs to the umami dao foundation it seems that the that the Dow has around 20 months of runway available at current spot pricing. Is this a correct characterization, assuming strictly no changes in market or protocol environment? In the event of a tighter runway, have either parties discussed potential austerity measures? So yeah, I think um, you know part of this goes down to our, our treasury managers, right? And um, they're doing a, a fantastic job, and their whole, their whole job is to you know, secure the yield of treasury funds and protection of, of capital in any market conditions up or down and try to maximize uh, the treasury the best they can. They do a fantastic job. And I think as, as record shows through, through the last months that they've been working, um, they've done a great, a great job with this. And so obviously in the, in the chance, um, in the event that, you know, some extreme, uh, uh, you know, market circumstances and, and, uh, occurs in the next few months, Excuse me. I think we'll be very well protected, but certainly um, there's no opposition to to trimming back expenses if we think if it's in the best interest of the protocol. Um, certainly, um, and you know, there's always a trade-off with cutting expenses: is is that cuts growth or it cuts quality of execution of of code or, or possibilities for for audits and things like that. Um, and so, you know, there's always trade-offs, but but ultimately, yeah, I think it's it's within our best interest to um, take the action that that benefits the protocol the most. And I also wanted to point out too that there's only a, a relatively small time period that um, that we're gonna that we're until we're gonna start seeing um, our own protocol revenue come in through our DeFi products, which which are the vaults, right? And so, uh, if you look at our roadmap, there is. A path to a path forward, relatively in a business sense, relatively quickly generating some great fees from these vault products coming in to really offset the pressure of the the treasury. Ideally, you know, help grow the treasury as that scales, as well as really increase the amount of yield and rewards that are given to the marinated stakers. So, um, yeah, that's a. That's a really good point. And then the, the last question, does the protocol contemplate bridging assets to mainnet or other blockchains and its yield generation activities? So that's a good question. It's not something that we're going to rule out, but it's also not something that we have in our immediate uh, roadmap, with the exception of, I would say, 
um, the app GMX Avalanche um, blockchain is probably the fastest um, option to to go cross chain for yield generation because uh, of our familiarity with the GMX platforms and uh, you know all our smart contract code that's going to be on Arbitrum. We'll be able to port it over with relative ease to Avalanche. And um, and with that, the um, fees generated would be bridged over to Arbitrum and would be to the benefit of um, our Arbitrum Umami marinated stakeholders. We don't have any plans currently to have staking on any other chain for Umami. It's just Arbitrum at the moment. And, um, you know, we're, we're definitely open to exploring, you know, different chains, but I think the the number one chain that we would identify besides Avalanche with our V2 Vault products, just because there's so much synergies right now with the GMX platform being on both and our and our vault contract being able to operate on both, the other chain um, would definitely be mainnet Ethereum. Uh, you know, I, I as a protocol, we've always been really big, you know, uh, really big on Ethereum, both L1 and L2. Um, obviously, we love Arbitrum for all the reasons that people are listening. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic L2. And, and we also can see the, the benefit and potential of Ethereum L1. Um, and in our roadmap, we even have uh, plans for our ETH2 staking product, which will um, you know, mainly take advantage of mainnet Ethereum. And um, of course, any rewards generated that are there, like we mentioned, will be bridged over to Arbitrum for our marinated Umami stakers on uh, on the L2. So, yeah, that was a lot. Quite a few questions, but it, honestly, I love uh, I love detailed questions like this. Love getting a chance to answer. And so, uh, I'm actually going to let uh, Alex G speak because um, he has some some great things to discuss. I'm going to get a drink of water here, but I will be available if there's any more questions on on anything I ask or anything else. So, Alex, you want to Take the floor. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you so much, Prepop. That was uh, that was actually quite amazing that you made it through all those questions. And I agree, those are all uh, phenomenal questions about about what we're doing. So um, I want to um, first go over some updates on the legal side uh, for Umami, um, which are going to be relatively brief. And then uh, we did have one uh, question in the AMA, which I really want to answer because it's it's something interesting that's. Um, going on in uh in in sort of the world of crypto generally right now but obviously want to uh cover um the uh the the stuff that's pertinent to umami um first so the uh the the the, the big um uh movement for umami uh this week is that we we are now um actually taking concrete steps to forming our um registered investment advisor entity. And um, the I wanted to just sort of clarify what, what the role of this entity is gonna be in the broader uh, Umami uh, ecosystem. Uh, so, you know, the, the w- with the vaults that we're rolling out, obviously that's the big exciting product, you know, our, our position, and I don't think this is a particularly aggressive position in the world of, uh, of DeFi and crypto, is that um, these vaults are uh, permissionless software that operates on chain. And therefore, 
the interaction, public interaction with, with, with the vaults is akin to public interaction with, with any um, type of software. And therefore, where, if anybody on their own volition opts to use one of the vaults at their own risk, um, then uh, th there's not really an exchange there between directly between you know any umami entity and that person. They're just using a product which 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 we've made available. Um, obviously, should the law in that regard change, uh, we would need to change our strategy. But I think that's that's pretty much the um, the consensus to the extent there is one now in in, in American law. Um, but the, 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 the issue gets more complicated, uh, once, um, the, uh, it, once we start dealing with, um, other kind of intermediaries and, and really once we start, you know, in, advising people to use the, uh, the software we've created, um, you know, un, un, unfortunately, uh, I, as much as I'd like to just like tag NFA on the end of everything we say, I, I think we all can acknowledge that's a, a fig leaf mostly imaginary doesn't really mean much so you know as as we move forward um to sort of line up more institutional partners um we are going to need to have an entity which can in fact give um financial advice and um obviously the the, the financial advice that we're planning on giving is uh, you should use these vaults if it's appropriate for your, you know, um, uh, financial objectives. Um, and and so to, to that end, we, we are forming a registered investment advising company called Umani Advisors. Um, it will, you know, initially have this sort of narrow purpose of servicing individuals uh, who are interested in, 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 in using the vaults, um, you know, through an intermediary. Uh, as in the future, I think we're all optimistic that our suite of products is going to grow, and I think Umami Advisors will grow will grow along with that. Um, so that's uh, that's a pretty uh, I think ex ex exciting step. Um, I know we've been talking about it for a while, and it's nice to actually have some concrete movement um, in in that direction. the The other problem which will need to be solved in that regard is you know the extent to which we'll need to uh, uh, come up with a custodial solution for individuals who wish to use umami products but do not want to take their own custody of uh, the uh, the receipt tokens. And that is um, a, a slightly different kettle of fish than um, the uh, just uh, investment advisors. Anybody who's, I think, in the world of finance knows that typically um, the world of custodians and advisors is uh is fairly separate and so uh we will um continue to uh, uh look for solutions to that i think that um just looking at the current uh marketplace in in terms of um institutional adoption of crypto there are it's it's probably more likely that we'll find uh partners who want to fulfill that custodial role for us who already offer that service who we can slot in with i'm guessing right now that it will be more economical to um, to create those partnerships than to create our own um, custodial service. But uh, if that changes, then we will, uh, you know, we will take the steps to create a, um, a custodian. So, you know, 
but but again, that 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 all remains to be seen. But the uh, it's it's become clear the writings on the wall, so to speak, that uh, it, that advisor function is something that we're going to have to take up in house, and so we are doing that. Um, so with that said. Uh, those that's the main pertinent, I think, uh, legal update for Umami, and I'm happy to answer any um, any questions uh, that, uh, that that anybody has on that. Uh, and then, so with that, I'll actually get to the uh, the question from Kapitiz in uh, uh, the AMA, which is a great question. So he had linked um, the SBF uh thread on on crypto regulation and um that's uh i i so, so there's a little bit of reading in between the lines on the sbf thread on on crypto regulation that there is a bill that's floating around in dc right now um called the dccpa which is uh i don't remember actually what that acronym stands for um but it's uh the word on the street, so to speak, is that uh, uh, it's heavily backed by FTX, and uh, um, FTX is really doing a big lobbying push behind this bill. And I think that that makes people um, justifiably a little bit um, anxious about about what's going on with this bill, because I, I don't know that FTX always operates um, well. FTX operates with the best interests of X, of FTX in mind, and those interests don't always coincide with uh, with other actors um, in in crypto. And um, you know, it is it sort of just so happens, right, that the uh, that that SBF's thoughts on Twitter about uh, uh, what he thinks crypto regulation should look like. Um, are kind of mirrored in this uh, DCCPA, which is not um, actually uh, released to the public as of yet. Um, I have seen uh, a, a draft that's purportedly the markup, the committee markup of it, but I'm always a little bit dubious uh, when when you see these sort of like leaked um, uh, committee bills because you you might see the bill, but you don't. There's no way of knowing just looking at the document um what uh uh what what stage in the process it's in so uh, again i'm i'm a little bit leery of it but but i i am i do welcome the the opportunity to kind of broadly discuss um so, some of the some of the topics in it and you know i mean i think that it that, you know there's there's some good good ideas in it um you know that that we, we do need um, to have some clarity about what what are commodities, what are securities in in, in the digital space, um, we need to have clarity about uh, who are broker dealers, um, who are exchanges uh, that need to register, uh, um, all all this type of thing. Um, so in that sense, it's it's a step in the right direction. Um, uh, j just as kind of all the legislative attempts are. Um, I, unfortunately, though, that's kind of the nicest thing I have to say about it because, and, and I'm not uh, too idealistic about this. I understand how DC works and the idea that 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 we're going to get everything we could possibly want in crypto legislation is ludicrous. And I'm not advancing that, but I do think that there are significant enough flaws. In, in this particular um, you know piece of legislation 
that that I have a hard time um, supporting it in its current form. Not that my opinion really matters, um, and I suppose if it's what we get, we can deal with it. But my my big problem with this legislative framework, and and others have pointed this out. This is not really an original idea for me, but but I think this is really pertinent. Is we we have to draw this line between um, people who are creating software, people who are publishing code. And and people who are financial actors, and and I think that it's actually quite a complicated issue, and not an issue that the people who are in charge of making the rules have have put necessarily enough thought into. Um, the problem, though, with with the approach that that that, that FTX is advocating, and the uh, and uh, and and the DC CPA is 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 taking is that. We're de- what they're doing is they're defining anything that has a a front end, right? It, like a website front end that uh, uh, individuals can interact with as a financial actor that needs to register. And I think that that is a, the absolute incorrect place to draw that line, right? Because you can sit there and say, well, code exists on chain and code is just code and and it's not, you know, if you use the code, then you're using the code and 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 you're not um, you know, you're not giving advice, you're not, you're not making anybody do anything, et cetera, et cetera. And and that that makes I mean, I think that that's where the line should be. But um the uh the other um uh you know the problem is that it's really unrealistic. And just not at all a reflection of the of the reality of the current market that people are out there just interacting directly with contracts. Um, some people are obviously, and and you know if you do that, then good for you. You're more advanced than me and a lot of other people. Um, but I don't think the I, I think that this idea that well, once I've slapped an HTML front end on my smart contract. So that people can actually interact with it through uh, their MetaMask and a web browser. That now all of a sudden I've gone from somebody who's publishing software to somebody who's operating an exchange or you know is a broker dealer or whatever that would require registration is um, it's it's a little bit of a Trojan horse because the the reality is that. If if you don't do that, if your product consists only of a smart contract without any way of interacting with it um, uh, through a web browser, then then you're going to get left behind. There's not there's not really a market for that. And so, um, you know, I think that that what what's really happening, you know, because of this provision in in, in the legislation is that um, people are that. that we're we're actually casting a much wider net of entities which will need to register in order to um, uh, operate legally in the United States, and it it, it reflects the um, general outlook I think of the legislation we've seen in the U.S., especially compared to um, the 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 MICA framework that just came out in the EU that. It's really geared towards the large institutional actors, right? And so, if you're, you know, 
hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in AUM, you don't really care where that line is for where you have to register, right? Because you're probably going to do it anyway. You have that that um, uh, ability in-house to do so. It's it's not very important. But the, the small to medium-sized actors, i.e. umami, um, you know, throwing, uh, casually sort of throwing around registration requirements that are not totally clear on that type of entity is prohibitive to the point of being um, sort of fatal to, to, to being in that kind of market. And so I think that the, the, the FTX legislation, I'm just calling it that because that's really what it is, is, is being rightly criticized as a little bit of kind of like last guy in shut the door, right? That it's people who have already made quite a bit of money off of retail in the crypto space making sure that that you know their competition is going to be limited using regulators to other large companies and you know if you look at what they're doing in Europe they're really trying very hard i think to to encourage innovation by creating um they're actually not less gung ho in Europe about licensing than they are in the US uh, which is not surprising um but they're really trying to create um, licensing frameworks that are not quite so onerous as we have in, in the U.S. I mean, if it were easy to register with the CFTC or the SEC to do any of these things, then I would feel differently about the registration requirements because, um, okay, then if it's not, if, you know, if it's not too hard to do, then you just do it. But, you know, if if the registration requirements all include things like, you know, X number of years of, of audited financial statements and, um, you know, all of these type of things and, you know, a detailed review process that is backlogged and, and you can't start doing things until you've, you've managed to navigate that, that backlog. That's when the regulations really do start to stifle um, innovation. And so I, um, don't really think that we're going to see any big legislative movements on crypto before the election, which is now just a few weeks away. Um, been wrong, obviously, before. I don't have a crystal ball, so maybe that's that's not correct. But um, I, I think that uh, we're probably not going to see anything until next year on this. And, uh, and, and I think the politics of it will look a little bit differently. Um, you know, when we get there. So that was sort of a long answer to that. And uh, uh, I will uh, turn back, turn things back over to um, to uh, pre-pop and, uh, and, uh, and grumpy if there's, if there's any questions. So there is one more I saw from Capitese, uh in the Discord that was in the Discord uh, yesterday. Oh. And that was... Um, he was just—he was curious about the backtesting of GLP and how confident um, it'll perform during a crab market with possibly low volume. And that's a good question because, uh, listen, the yield from these strategies does come from GMX, from GLP, right? So um, when the GLP fees are down for that week, the vault yield will be down for that week. Um, and so... The you know historically there has been up and down weeks, but overall <clears throat> the yield has been very high 
um, you know, throughout GMXs. And I've just got to say, they have the most incredible asset utilization I've seen. All right. They, they have their, their arm NGLP um, is like 300 million plus. And they were generating one week, you know, 30 or 38% APR for that week. That's incredible utilization. And uh, as Arbitrum grows, as GMX grows, the new new user user growth is is pretty incredible. Um, so it's you know, it, it's a bet. Uh, the vaults are also a bet on on GMX, which we're we're very bullish on, or else we wouldn't have considered the strategy. Um, and you know, the back testing does show. Um, you know, definitely in down weeks, the yield is down for that week if there's low volatility, low trades, um, that sort of thing. But um, it still generates a good amount of yield even during those those crab type periods. And the other the other aspect about it is if the utilization rate is low, that means the fees on borrow rates and, and some of the hedging cost fees are lower as well. And so yield goes down, but you know potentially the fees go down uh, in those same conditions, generating more of a net profit uh, in those in the in the vaults at the time. So. But that, but uh, that is a, an interesting question, and, and those are the types of things that we hope to publish in the back testing data to you know uh, the full the full range duration of of those back tests. And so, with that, um, I was going to see: is there any any questions on any of the uh, listeners here on the on the spaces? Does anybody have any questions they want to come up and and ask us? So while we wait um, for any questions, uh, Grumpy, do you have anything that you wanted to add on, on the community side? Any, any updates or, or announcements? Yeah, guys, uh, not too much on the uh, the community side of things. We do we do have a planned AMA or, or kind of demo with vendor finance. We've noticed uh, CM and Mommy's gotten a lot of usage on, on their platform. So um, we thought it'd be good if they did like kind of like a demo session for the community to show how the platform works for those who who aren't really too familiar with with lend slash borrow. So that should be cool. Um, one 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 other thing, I, I will I will actually a question I want to put to the community. Uh, not many people might not have any feedback on this whatsoever, but uh, will we see if there's any any actual sort of pertinent questions from the listeners from today? I was gonna. I'm I'm putting together my um my blog post uh for for this month um and I was uh debating between two two things I want to write about both of which I'm going to write about eventually but uh if there's something that 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 uh, people are more interested in then I'll make it a priority I have a I have a post I'm working on that sort of general guidance um for tax and liability protection for um sort of solo operatives, devs, and other professionals who work in the crypto space, just because I know that's something that, um, it's just a resource that doesn't really exist. And I I'm hoping to create something that can be a general reference point of, um, of, be of best practices in the U.S. Uh, for people who, who operate in the, in the space and are looking to um, uh, decrease their, their uh or, or not de will maximize their tax efficiency and decrease uh, uh, their uh, liability risks to, to the greatest extent possible. So uh, I have a feeling that one will be of, of interest. And then the other one I was thinking of putting together, uh, mostly because it's just a subject that's near and dear to my heart, but I think generally interesting, which is the extent to which um, 
you can write off um, casualty losses for like Ponzi schemes and similar uh, types of losses as an individual investor in crypto. There were some tax law changes after the uh, the Bernie Madoff thing, uh, whatever that was a decade and a half ago. Um, and so some of those would be useful in um, in crypto as well, possibly like a uh, the, the, the sort of hangover from node season, if you will. Um, people trying to figure out, hey, can I get can I extract any value at all from this strong node? Well, maybe you have a tax write-off. Um, so uh, if if uh, if anybody has like a preference for what they want to see this month, just hit me up in uh, in the Discord, and I'll probably probably go in that direction. Like I said, I'm gonna get to both of them eventually, though. Awesome. Hey, if anybody has a question, feel free to uh, raise your hand. But if not, we're, we'll go ahead and end it here in a few minutes. So, oh, there was, there was one from uh, from Arrow 8 in the Discord, too. Um, the question was, hey, could the product line expand beyond the core three in the future? And B, would there be more of an emphasis on governments, governance votes moving forward on which protocols would get new strategies built for them? And so, uh, yeah, the, the product line, I think, is, is always going to expand. Uh, you know, we, we definitely want to be innovators in the space and um, look for, for some of the most compelling sources of, of yield and, and um, you know, compelling use cases for DeFi in general. Um, and, you know, that's part of the reason we're getting some of the interest from institutional clients is uh, for exploring these options and, and really helping a bridge to uh, some of these strategies that are really native to to DeFi and crypto, um, and you know, as as you guys are familiar with, there's a lot of really interesting things out there to explore. So I think we're absolutely open to uh, more product lines, and as in general, like every product line that we add in the future, will share the same um, reward and fee split with with stake uh, marinated umami holders. Right, that's just one of our our core principles as a protocol is is um, to really you know, be a, a community that builds the products and, and shares with the token holders. And so with that, I, I do think, um, you know, there, there, there certainly could be um, a governance aspect in, in terms of strategies. I don't know if we want to be in a place where it's like, uh, you know, whoever, you know, like a popularity contest of what's the next protocol to add versus like detailed analysis of what we think is going to build, bring, bring the most yield or strategy. Um, but because I think, you know, that's always going to, we're always going to analyze things of, uh, in a strategy level, especially with our, our back testing capabilities that we're building up now. So my, my phone's actually about to die. So I think we should probably end it here, but yeah, you can ask any questions in the discord and, and be happy to answer there from, uh, anytime. So thank you guys for listening and, uh, we'll, we'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.